Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of the Rice Can We podcast. Thank you all so much for joining me. Once again, I first of all have to say that I'm super thankful for you guys that are continuing to show up and continuing to listen to the show during this Rise, Kill, Eat, Repeat series because if I'm being honest, I honestly thought that the amount of downloads and the, the audience it would it would decrease dramatically, but I mean, up to this point, you guys have continued to show up and continue to listen, and I can't thank you guys enough. You guys are awesome. My name is Tyler Pruitt. I am the host and the founder of this show, the Rise, Kill, Eat podcast, the show that is designed for people that love God freedom and the great outdoors and that's right i did say freedom that's something that seems to be thrown around a little bit here lately but those three things are what i want to prioritize with this show and those three things are what i want to continue to talk about as far as the content as far as the the purpose of the rise Kelly podcast so thank you all for continuing to to show up and listen to that if you haven't connected with me on social media you can find me on instagram i'm on there at the handle at rice kill eat and i'm also on facebook at facebook.com slash rke a field all right and then i also recently within the past month or so have jumped on the parlor train i'm not not exactly sure what i'm doing on that yet i'm trying to figure that out i think i've got maybe a handful of followers on there so those guys that are on parlor and you want to connect with the rascally podcast you can do that it's at the handle i guess they have handles if you just search rice kill eat you'll be able to find it on there all right so before i get into today's episode and part three of the Rise, Kill, Eat, Repeat series with Kip Adams, I wanted to kind of just share share a little passage that I was actually reading this morning, and it just seemed to seemed to fit perfectly with kind of what's going on right now. Um, it's it's pretty cool how how the Bible continues to do that, and whenever we're doing our our diligent readings and we're we are continuing to to study what God has to say, it's crazy how how relevant things are. This stuff was written 2000 years ago and still relevant to this day. So what I'm reading today is out of Luke, the gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10 verses 38 through 42. Right. So this is a story about, uh, Martha and Mary. So leading up to this point, just kind of give you a backstory just because the passage here just kind of starts right in the middle of their story. Jesus is kind of traveling around with his ministry. Like he's deep into his ministry at this point. Um, the disciples are going out. He's he's sending people out to kind of to tell different cities in their in the region that Jesus is walking through. He's coming through, coming through to teach. So at this point, this is following the story of the the Good Samaritan, as I'm sure many people have probably heard that or about, are at least familiar with the phrase. So this is verse 38 in chapter 10 of Luke. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right, basically what I what I gathered from that is that, you know, right now, really all the time, but especially it seems right now within the past week or so, it seems like there are thousands, if not millions of voices out there that are telling us, you know, what to think. They're telling us what to do. They are definitely sharing their opinions, and there is all kinds of distractions. 
Like this world is full of distractions, even when it's not an election season. It's very easy to become distracted by our work, just like Martha was. It's very easy to become distracted by all kinds of things that take away our attention from what's really important. And that is what Jesus is saying. All right, so we have two different people here. We have Martha, who is up working. I mean, she's doing something that, you know, a lot of people would see as noble. I'm sure Martha saw it as a noble thing to get up and work and serve Jesus while he's a guest in the home, being hospitable. So it's definitely something that, and the Bible talks about that. And the Bible talks about how, you know, we should be hospitable. We should be, you know, diligent workers. But at this moment, in this in this exact moment, you have two different people. You have Martha, who's working, being distracted. And then you have Mary, who's sitting on the floor and listening to Jesus' teachings. There's two very, very different scenarios here going on at the same time. See, when we're in the presence of Jesus, which, I mean, for us believers, that's all the time. We're in the presence of Jesus. It's very important for us not to get distracted by outside voices, by work. It's it's important that we don't get distracted by by the world, essentially. All right, and it's very important that we continue to cling to what Jesus is teaching us. You know, listen to Jesus and do what He tells us to do. I think it's one of the greatest advices that I think I've ever heard, and I think this is very true with what we got going on right here in this story with Martha and Mary. So again, that's in Luke chapter ten, verses thirty-eight through forty-two. I definitely suggest you guys go check that out. Uh, don't become so distracted that we forget to listen to Jesus. All right, so this is part number three of the Rise, Kill, Eat, Repeat series. Um, I mentioned that a minute ago, and those of you guys that have been listening the past couple of weeks, you guys know that uh, in part one, I shared my conversation with Dr. Carl Miller, where he talked about the biology and physiology of white-tailed deer. I figured that was a very appropriate episode to to reshare. That was something that, that was a conversation that I had with him back in uh, 2019. And that's what I'm doing with these, this Rice Kill Eat Repeat series is I'm taking some of my favorite, I, I like them all, so don't, I'm not, I'm not singling out these handful that I'm picking here. I'm just picking some of, some of my favorite and picking some of the ones that are still very relevant. So I picked some of my favorites and very relevant episodes from 2019. And during the month of November and the last week of October, I've chosen to reshare and repost those episodes for you guys to listen to. Um, gotten a lot of within the past 12 months gotten a lot of new listeners gotten a lot of new uh, audience members and i definitely appreciate that and uh not everybody's had opportunity to be able to go back and listen to some of these episodes and i just wanted to you know during the hunting season to give myself a little bit of a break from the podcasting deal and to give myself a little bit of an opportunity to spend some time with family while i'm also spending time out in the woods and also my guest i mean we're all hunters on here we're all people who love to get outdoors so i mean they're outside too so scheduling can become a little bit tricky this time of year so i wanted to take an opportunity over the next handful of weeks to be able to share some of the past episodes of the rice Kelly podcast so for this week this is part three i am sharing my conversation that i had with kip adams so those of you guys that may not know who kip adams is he is the Director of Conservation for the QDMA, the Quality Deer Management Association. Um, so in this episode, he really gives a, a deer diseases one-on-one course right here and basically talks about how, uh, you know, diseases like CWD, EHD, those things are spread. Um, it's a very, 
unfortunate reality for deer hunters and the deer population and deer management that this is something that we have to deal with, but it's also necessary for us to know as much information about it as possible. So, uh, this is exactly what we get into in this conversation with Kip Adams. So I know you guys are going to enjoy it. This is part three of the rise, kill, eat, repeat series. Enjoy the episode. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on tonight. I, I, I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate you taking some time this evening to, to talk with me. My pleasure. I was looking on Instagram and it, it looked like you were, were you guys on set with, was that Bearded Buck recently? Yeah, it was, yeah, in uh, kind of Western Pennsylvania. So uh, we've done some other stuff with the Bearded Buck in the past and uh, we're going to do, I guess, even more with them going forward. So uh, we shot a, a lot of video uh, in the last few days. Was there uh, any specific topics you guys were covering? I mean, I know deer season's coming up here. I'm sure a lot of a lot of it had to was dealing with that. Yeah, we uh, we are we've shot about 60 different uh, management tips or either biology tips or management tips. They were run on all their shows, you know, like kind of like a QDMA management minute. So uh, we talked about all kinds of stuff from deer biology to management to habitat management. So uh, a lot of that stuff. But then we spent all day Tuesday uh, walking parts of the property and in the woods, putting together a management plan for them. So uh, that's all habitat based. So uh, that was, the focus of that was habitat. Focus of all the management tips uh, was the entire gamut of deer biology and ecology and management. So uh, I got to talk a little bit about a lot of different things. So that's a lot of the type of things that QDMA does, isn't it? It's, it's dealing with a lot of the, you know, managing deer herds and, you know, looking at different types of diseases that are going on with white-tailed deer population. Is it just white-tailed deer or is it all types of deer? Yeah, we, we 99% of our work is with whitetails. Uh, a lot of the stuff with whitetails bleeds over into mule deer management. But uh, we work almost entirely with whitetails. The uh, habitat info that we share and, and teach people benefits a, a whole host of other species. But uh, the vast majority of it is done in the name of whitetails. Yeah, so you said that was up in Pennsylvania. Is that where you are currently living? Yeah, I live in north uh, north central Pennsylvania. So uh, they're all um, three and a half, four hours uh, southwest of me. And uh, Matt Ross is in uh, upstate New York. So uh, Matt actually flew to Pittsburgh and then got a ride over. Um, I'm close enough. I could easily drive from my house. But I do live in north central Pennsylvania. Did you uh, did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Is, it, is that a place that you have always lived in? I mean, is that a place that you're familiar with just from your childhood? And Yeah, Pennsylvania's home. And uh, I spent a, a decade in New Hampshire and Florida. Uh, I went to grad school in New Hampshire to the state of Florida and, and worked for the state wildlife agency for four years, uh, went back to the state of New Hampshire and worked as a New Hampshire Fish and Games deer and bear biologist, and then uh, came back to Pennsylvania um, 17 years ago now. I've been with QDMA 17 years. So so my job that I have as our director of, of conservation, uh, I, I travel throughout the country to work. So uh, I don't have to work out of our national office. I get to pick you know, where I want to live to a certain extent, and uh, but uh, Pennsylvania falls within uh, where I can. So that works out well for me. What kind of changes in the, or I guess the differences in the deer population have you seen from your different areas that you lived in, you know, comparing Pennsylvania to New Hampshire and 
Florida. And I'm sure there's there's probably some some differences in the overall population between those different areas, just based on geographical and you know climate. All those things have a factor in how deer are how deer populations are growing in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. You know, big differences in those three. Uh, New Hampshire is at the northern limit of whitetail range. Um, New Hampshire is a granite state uh, because most of the soil there are granite or sand. So, uh, you know, a lower productivity deer herd, terrible winter conditions in a, part, a fair amount of that state. So uh, much, much lower deer densities than you have in Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania is kind of right in the sweet spot of deer management in the country. Uh, that mid-Atlantic region is far enough north that you get some big deer, far enough south that we don't get that much winter kill and uh, really good growing conditions as well, most of the state. So real high densities of deer, you know, kill some really big deer here, great age structure um, with regard to how the agency's managing this now. So uh, a lot of good things going on in Pennsylvania. Uh, Florida being, you know, almost everything there is sandy soils, um, give a much smaller subspecies of deer and, uh, you know, just lower quality food on average than you do uh, outside of Florida, you know, just most of that coastal region and all that sand. So um, absolute advantages uh, to managing deer in all three of those places. Certainly some some disadvantages in all three as well. Um, you know, that's one of the cool things about managing deer is that you can't do it the same everywhere. You know, there's intricacies in specific area that, eh, you know, that make it a little challenging and, and that's what makes it a lot of fun. So there are there actual like different, I've always heard this. I don't know if it's a myth or not. And of course you'd be able to tell me, but are there actual different sizes in the deer? I mean, is it, is it because of food supply? Is it because of, you know, heat dissipation, just biological uh, issues that are, you know, especially down in Florida where it's going to be much hotter than, you know, it would be in New Hampshire. Is there an actual body size difference between whitetail deer down South versus the Northern? In Florida, there is, uh, just because it follows Bergman's rule. So as you get closer to the equator, uh, and species tend to get smaller. So uh, there are, it doesn't mean you can't grow big deer in Florida. And, you know, they, they certainly do. But just on average, their subspecies of, of whitetail is smaller uh, than the one we have here in Pennsylvania or, or New Hampshire, or as you get farther north into Canada. Yeah, I've, I've always seen some uh, some pretty big deer coming out of the the northern region i mean it seems like it's almost a a common occurrence i mean you know that like you said the pennsylvania area the ohio i live in kentucky so of course we get some big deer that come out of kentucky just about every year but it seems like that that kind of sweet spot that sweet area like you said the mid-atlantic area is is where is where it's at as far as deer hunting goes if you're into you know of course big bodied deer yeah, and then where you are in Kentucky, you have, you know, they, they kill some huge deer there each year, uh, particularly from, a, you know, western Kentucky, you know, from an antler growth standpoint, uh, you're in a very good region as well. Um, for the most part, you know, the, the body size that you have there are almost identical to what we have in Pennsylvania. You know, any differences would be more attributable to management uh, on those properties than anything else. So, yeah, you ba- we basically have the same deer that you guys have. Um, however, you guys on average, you know, tend to kill a lot or kill more, you know, really large whitetails where folks are really moving deer into some of the older age classes and, you know, and really enhancing habitat for them. I think your ceiling is a little higher in, uh, in parts of your state than they are in parts of Pennsylvania. Why do you think that is? You think it's a more of a cultural thing or you think it's just a hunter preference thing or is it just, uh, I mean, what, what could be contributing to, you know, some bigger, more quantity, I guess, bigger bucks coming out of kentucky 
Uh, well, part of it is the land use patterns, um, particularly in the western part of your state. You know, you have really good soils. Um, the soils alone don't explain that much of the differences in antler growth patterns. Uh, what it does, though, is the land use on those soils. So, for example, uh, you know, soybeans grown in western Kentucky are no more nutritious than they are grown in Pennsylvania or even Florida. Each individual leaf has the same basic nutrient components. However, where you have better soils, the yield of those fields, you know, is much higher. And you end up with a lot more agricultural production because of it. So where I'm in Pennsylvania, so much of the state is just heavily forested. You know, on a per acre basis, forests, uh, I'm sorry, uh, land in early successional vegetation or agriculture have, provides a lot more high quality food than a comparable acre of forests. So, you know, you just have a really nice mix of forests and ag um, in particularly, not every, not just Western Kentucky, but you know, particularly Western Kentucky that just really, you know, relates to some of the big deer that come from that region. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I actually live in uh, Moorhead, which is on the northeast side. It's kind of right on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains. And my the main farm I hunt on is a soybean field. And it's one of, I mean, in this area, it's like the county I live in, like the southern half of the county is like mountainous areas. There's not a whole lot of flat land. But then the northern part is where some of the agriculture areas are. And it seems like the the northern area is where a lot of those you know those bigger deer the the higher chance of seeing deer is going to be just because of the agricultural the agriculture presence there that's that's actually there uh, i have seen some deer in the forested areas like their the national forest area but it's a uh, it's not nearly as common as it would be in the in the agriculture areas i can definitely see that and and that's not to say that you can't grow big deer in forested areas. We certainly do. You know, they do it in Saskatchewan right. and New England and everywhere else. Uh, just, you know, you're you're able to grow a lot more of them on a per acre basis in areas where you also have a lot of agriculture and or uh, early successional vegetation rather than forests. Exactly. Yeah. So you said that you were uh, director of conservation with QDMA. So as director of conservation, I mean, what all are you involved with? What are you responsible for as far as on a, on a national level or, or on a regional level? So as the director of conservation, what exactly does that look like for, for you? It, uh, I do most of my work at the national level. Um, and it is, uh, I, I'm very blessed. I have a great job. Uh, as director of conservation, I oversee our REACH program. And REACH is an acronym that stands for Research, Educate, advocate, certify, and hunt. So uh, I oversee all of our research uh, efforts, um, you know, securing funding for research projects, uh, being involved in research projects. Uh, the educate part are, are all of the educational materials that we create or, or develop. Um, so I get to my hand in all of that. Um, have a big presence in our advocacy arena. Um, where we get involved in over 100 legislative issues annually that impact deer hunting. So uh, we, we spend a lot of time fighting for deer hunters uh, on their behalf uh, at the legislative level. Uh, certifies as our certification programs, and, uh, and I oversee uh, our deer steward courses, uh, our land certification programs. Um, that's very fulfilling work, you know, to see uh, the amount of or the number of people who learn more about managing deer and habitat, you know, and, and, and enhance their stewardship knowledge, um, and then just the sheer acres that are involved. Uh, we recently added up. Uh, acreage impacted by attendees of our deer steward classes. Those are, you know, classes we actually teach each year. 
in uh, the last decade, or actually just over a decade now, uh, our attendees uh, have impacted uh, between 10 and 15 million acres of land. So it's very fulfilling, you know, that know that we are having a huge impact actually on the ground, you know, for for habitat for deer and a whole suite of other wildlife species. Uh, and the last is uh, the hunt. That that's our hunting heritage program. You know, this is uh, our youth program. You know, our recruitment efforts where we are trying to get you know youth and adult onset hunters uh, in the woods, trying to curb that that uh, trend of, of uh, fewer hunters. So. Uh, great staff, you know, that, that works with me and that I get to oversee. And uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to, to do what I do and get my hand involved in a whole bunch of things that, uh, that are very rewarding. That sounds like a great program. I mean, those are all obviously things that we, we are always needing. I mean, the number of deer hunters and just the number of hunters in general is of course on the decline. And I mean, that's, that's something that I've really appreciated about the QDMA is just their, their ability to obviously, share resources on managing whitetail deer, but also the hunter recruitment side, the, the advocacy side. So being able to speak out and, you know, stand up for, for issues that deer hunters care about. And that's something that, uh, I've, I've really admired about what the QDMA has done and what it sounds like you've been doing with this, uh, with the reach program. Yeah. It, uh, you know, the entire staff at QDMA works on those, the different programs that I talked about, you know, and more, but, uh, I'm, uh, I'm in a unique position to, you know, get to, to oversee that, really able to help have an impact on what is most needed. You know, 20 years ago uh, or 17 years ago when I started, uh, you know, it wasn't hunter recruitment. It wasn't CWD or disease, you know, but uh, those are, are two of by far the biggest things that we work with today. And uh, so it's nice to be able to really dedicate time and resources to the biggest issues of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's definitely, definitely needed. And, you know, like you said, I was as things have changed over the the decades, I mean, it's, we've really seen a switch in this concentration on, on making sure that hunter numbers are growing and making sure that we're introducing people to the outdoors and introducing people to hunting. And, you know, it's, uh, I think a lot of it, it, it kind of stems from, from the, just the freedom and knowing like where your fruit, your food is coming from. And of course, white-tailed deer is, in a lot of areas in the, in North America and a lot of areas in uh, the United States, it's a, it's a resource that's through conservation efforts has been, been made available for a lot of people for food purposes and for hunting purposes. And that's something that, that QDMA there, I mean, you guys are got your hand right in the middle of it. You're right in the, right in the mix of things. And it's, it's something that is a, Something that, as a hunter, I can definitely appreciate. As a whitetail hunter, I can definitely appreciate. It, uh, it's a good spot to be for sure, and uh, we we like being right there and, and helping all we can. Sounds like a dream job. <laughs> I'm very blessed. I'm the first to admit uh, how fortunate I am. <laughs> so, what exactly is the QDMA? I mean, we've we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but what all what all does it? Is the QDMA responsible? Can you kind of can you kind of go into that a little bit more? What what exactly the QDMA is? Sure. We're a national nonprofit wildlife conservation organization uh, with a mission to ensure the future of whitetail deer, wildlife habitat, and, and our hunting heritage. So we work with hunters, uh, landowners, natural resource professionals across the whitetails range, you know, to help provide good information to allow them to be better stewards of our natural resources. Uh, we work with uh, the state and provincial wildlife agencies to help set, you know, good deer management programs. Uh, we work with legislators to have good policy for deer hunting. Uh, and then we work with hunters to, to help them, you know, really execute the plan and uh, 
you know, be good stewards of the natural resources. Um, fully recognize that our state wildlife agencies could come up with the, the best deer plans in the world, but if hunters don't execute them, uh, then they're going to fail. So we spend a lot of time working with hunters and, you know, providing them the information that they want about deer, you know, how deer see, how deer hear, how to manage deer. Then all the landowners, how to enhance habitat for deer and other species. So there's a lot of teaching involved. Um, and, you know, and, and at the end of it, you know, we're hunters ourselves. Uh, I've been a wildlife biologist for, for well over 20 years now. And, uh, you know, but I started as a deer hunter. And I'm, I am first and foremost a deer hunter. So um, I like it that that, you know, is, is the heart of QDMA. You know, we are hunters. We work with hunters. We understand how hunters think and, you know, what hunters want. And, uh you know, or in many cases, are able to be liaisons between hunters and, and the state wildlife agencies to to make sure that the two are working together as as cooperatively as they possibly can, and uh, just to make sure that we are doing everything possible to provide good, healthy, sustainable deer populations and and hunting opportunities long into the future. Yeah, it sounds like. I mean, of course you know, QDMA and all these other organizations, these management organizations, you know, whether it be the state wildlife organization or these, uh, you know, private nonprofit, it sounds like, I mean, you guys, like you said, you, you come up with a plan, but without the execution from the hunters and without the execution from the people who are prioritizing these deer and who value the deer and wildlife without that, without their execution, then it's, it's simply the plan doesn't, doesn't really gain a whole lot of ground just because I mean there's nobody to to execute it I mean that's that's what I'm kind of getting from that and that's that's something you know like I said as a hunter I can definitely appreciate because I mean our our whitetail numbers overall I feel like I mean I'm, I'm fairly young so I I can't I can't necessarily go back too far but just from what I know from history and what I know from teaching myself on a whole lot of the, the history of wildlife populations that wildlife numbers and white-tailed deer specifically numbers are, are at a, at a good point compared to where they have been in the past. Yeah, they are. No, they certainly are. And, uh, you know, your comment regarding the, the wildlife agencies and working with hunters, uh, we work with the vast majority of state wildlife agencies, you know, and some um, put a lot more emphasis on working with hunters uh, than others do. And um, we have a great relationship with, with your agency there in Kentucky. And, and I can honestly say, you know, it, it, they understand how important it is to engage hunters and then to work with them. And uh, you, you know how good hunting is there in Kentucky. And we certainly recognize that, that Kentucky has a very good deer management program. Um, you know, I'm very proud of what they have there. And uh, Kentucky does uh, a lot of work to engage the agency with hunters. And, uh, you know, does a lot of listening, um, does a lot of sharing information. And that's important today. Uh, you know, the history of deer and wildlife management really was the agencies kind of were the authority and they, they provided uh, the seasons and bag limits and just expected hunters to follow. And, uh, you know, that, that worked well, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, but uh, it's very different today. You know, hunters are, are more knowledgeable than they've ever been about deer biology and, and management and, and enhancing habitat. So, you know, they, they want to be involved in the process more than in the past and uh, agencies that are accepting of that and are engaging them, you know, uh, are tend to be the ones that, uh, that are doing much better today with regard to having successful deer management programs. So and in Kentucky, certainly on, on that list. And, uh, in fact, they've, they've won our wildlife agency of the year award in the past uh, because of some of those efforts. Yeah, def- definitely the, the level of involvement of hunters in Kentucky and just hunters in, in general and in, in like the Midwest region, that kind of thing, uh, 
just the level of, like you said, the, the amount of knowledge that we're, we have access to is, is pretty incredible. And just in my maybe a few years, handful of years of that, I've actually been hunting and wanting to learn more about, you know, deer biology and learn more about wildlife biology and that kind of thing. I have, I've been blessed with the opportunity to be able to have resources available to where I can, I can, you know, look up and I can, I can look up guys like you and I can look up, uh, you know, resources like QDMA. I can look up resources like, uh, national deer Alliance and all these, these different organizations who've put together, uh, a lot of different research articles or different kind of resources that allow hunters to educate themselves more and more. And that's, that's definitely, I think been a, been very much of a game changer. And I, I feel like I'm learning more and more, you know, every year that, that I'm out there in the field hunting. Um, yeah, that's a great thing. Uh, there's definitely more information available today. Still, you know, lots and lots of research that's going on, but just the availability of that to the average hunter today is, is far greater than it's ever been before. And, um, you know, there's a lot of information that, that that's not necessarily true, um, but the vast majority of science-based information that is is available today is, is at a much higher level. And, and that's a great thing. You know, we're, we're in a very good age of uh, deer hunting right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really wanted to bring you on, you know, to kind of, to kind of discuss the, the whole deer disease thing. I mean, CWD, EHD, we always hear these, these acronyms. We always hear these abbreviations of things and we just don't, I feel like the general deer hunting population, myself included, honestly, to, to a certain degree, we don't really know a whole lot of it. I mean, we know it's bad. We know it's something that's not good for deer populations, but we're not exactly sure on the on the specifics of things and what the implications mean for deer populations, what the implications mean for wildlife biology in general, and just the future of hunting. Just to kind of kind of lead into this, can you kind of break down the differences between EHD, what EHD actually is, compared to CWD? I know that there's a lot of information there, but can you kind of kind of package those apart for uh, a layperson to understand? Sure. Uh, EHD is, a, is, is epizootic hemorrhagic disease. Um, it's, it's a viral disease that's carried by uh, biting midges, or we often call them noceums. Um, some people call it EHD. Some people call it HD. You'll hear some people refer to it as blue tongue. Uh, and essentially, EHD and blue tongue are the same disease. Um, they're just a different strain of the virus that causes it. So because of that, they're often just collectively grouped together and referred to as hemorrhagic disease. Now, this is the disease that uh, we see during the summer and early fall. Um, importantly, though, not all deer die from it. It does kill some deer. A lot of deer that contract the disease actually survive. And if they survive, then they have antibodies that will protect them against that strain of the disease in the future. So, uh, so that, that's important to know. Uh, it's, a, it's a very common disease of white-tailed deer. Um, it's nice that it does not kill all of them, uh, and it tends to be very localized. So, you know, you may be in an area that that's experiencing an outbreak of, of hemorrhagic disease, and there may be a bunch of deer dying right around you. Um, and, and literally five miles down the road, uh, there can be no no impact at all. This is since it is carried by those, those uh, biting midges or the noceums. As soon as we get a couple of frosts in the fall, um, that disease is essentially done for the year. So. Uh, because the, the carriers of it, those midges, you know, are, are gone. So it's also important to know this disease happens somewhere in the United States every year. And it used to be thought of as a, as a disease of, of the Southeast U.S. And, and I vividly remember when I was in, in 
undergraduate school at Penn State back in uh, the late 80s and early 1990s. Uh, when it came time to talk about hemorrhagic disease, they said, uh, you know, this is a disease that deer in the southeast get. And uh, that was about all they talked about <laughs> because, you know, it was not in Pennsylvania. It was nowhere in the north. Well, well, fast forward to today, and the, the scene out there is very different. You know, we, we confirmed it much farther north than, than Pennsylvania today. So I'd say that because if deer are, you know, have not been exposed to it, it tends to kill higher numbers, such as Pennsylvania. You know, we, we've only had confirmed it a, a few different times. So when our deer are exposed to it, you know, uh, they, they tend to die at higher rates than deer, say, in Florida or Georgia or Mississippi or, or places, you know, where those deer see some of it every year. So uh, we've had a, a couple really bad outbreaks within the last decade, um, kind of 100-year storm type things. Uh, in 2012, it was awful. Fast forward, you know, just a few years, we had another 100-year event. So um, there's a lot more deer hunters that are being impacted by hemorrhagic disease today than uh, than a decade or, or more ago. You may notice uh, some deer that you shoot, uh, if the hooves look like they have uh, sloughing on them or lines that you see on them, those are often the results of a deer that had the disease and survived. So what happens when they have it, uh, their hooves actually stop growing. And uh, so there are ways to tell, you know, if you shoot a deer in the future that, that actually did have it. Um, most hunters though, what they'll see with this disease, uh, these are where the deer, or the, the disease causes a fever in a deer hemorrhaging around uh, the heart. So these deer often go to water. The disease tends to be worse in drought years. So if all of a sudden, you know, you start finding a bunch of dead deer around ponds or rivers, um, those are almost always the, the result of hemorrhagic disease. So in drought years, is it because these these midges that are, are uh, contracting or that are spreading this disease, is it because they, the water is going to be so much more localized or more deer are going to be in those localized areas? Is that typically why it's worse in drought years? Yep, that's certainly part of it. You know, deer end up, um, you know, in, in those areas. So they're congregating in areas, which makes it easier for the midges to, to, to transfer the disease. It's also that, you know, in drought years, you look at ponds and that, you know how you'll have vegetation at the top, then all of a sudden when the water levels down, you have that mud ring around the pond. Those mud rings are the perfect ground for the midges. So you have perfect conditions for the midges and you're congregating all these deer into smaller areas. So, uh, so it's a perfect storm for, for the midges to really whack a bunch of deer and, uh, and transfer the disease. Now, do they typically enter through like open cavities, like, you know, like the nose or are they actually able to burrow into the skin? I mean, how are they actually getting inside the deer to, to spread the EHD? They're actually, they're actually biting them. And what they'll do is, you know, they'll bite okay. a deer. And, uh, so if a midge does not, is not carrying the disease, it'll bite a deer and take a blood meal. If that deer has the disease, then midge can actually pick it up. And then when that midge goes and bites another deer, it can then actually move the disease to that deer. So, uh, so they're actually biting, uh, and that's how they're transferring it. Uh, hemorrhagic disease uh, is important from uh, an agricultural standpoint because cows can actually get it. They can, you know, cattle uh, do get uh, hemorrhagic disease. Uh, there's a bunch of other species that we hunt, you know, big game stuff that, that can get it as well. But cattle can, humans cannot, which is good. But a cattle can, so uh, the Department of Ag, you know, is often interested in this as well. Uh, large scale, though, we certainly get deer die-offs uh, from this. Um, sometimes there can be quite a few deer, but uh, long term, um, you know, 
deer rebound pretty quickly. And uh, this is not a, a devastating disease of deer like chronic wasting disease can be. So uh, we can shift gears and talk right. about that. CWD um, long term is a much bigger deal. CWD, you know, it's a prion disease, uh, kills deer by essentially eating holes in the brain. Um, I say it's a prion disease because it is not uh, caused by a bacteria or by a virus. Remember, hemorrhagic disease is by a virus. Um, since chronic wasting disease or CWD is not caused by a virus or bacteria, you know, we don't have a way to kill it or to stop it. So uh, it is caused by, it's a prion disease. Now, there are similar prion diseases in other species. Um, in the humans, it's called Crutchfeld-Jakob disease. Uh, there's a, a prion disease in cattle that's uh, called BSE or uh, the mad cow disease. Um, in sheep, it's yeah, called yeah. scrapie. Yeah. So uh, you know, there are, are similar prion diseases in different species. The one in deer called CWD or chronic wasting. Um, this is bad because... Uh, it's 100% fatal to all deer, uh, as well as other things that we hunt. Deer, white tails, mule deer, elk, red deer, moose, reindeer, um, possibly others that we, that we don't know of yet. But, uh, you know, a lot of things that we like to chase around the woods, uh, this thing can kill. So it, it's 100% fatal to all, all deer or anything that can get it. Uh, there's no vaccine uh, and there's no cure. So, you know, none of those are good for, for deer herds or, or the future of hunting. A couple of the really dangerous things about CWD is that deer can carry the disease for 18 to 24 months and not show any signs of it. So it has a really long incubation period. However, during that whole time it's carrying it, it can be shedding these prions that when other deer come in contact with them, other deer can become infected. A cow that has mad cow disease can't give it to another cow. Well, un unless you grind that cow up and, you know, feed it to another cow. But if you have a whole pen of cows and one of them has mad cow, none of the others are going to get it. That's very different with deer. You have one that has it and other deer that come in contact with it can get the disease. Is that through like uh, body fluid or is that through, uh, you know, uh, some kind of contact? Or I mean, how, how is it specifically spread, spread, you know, through saliva or how do they actually contract CWD? That's a great question. It's, it's through both ways that you said. Uh, we know that the, the prions are shed in saliva, urine, feces, and blood. And uh, so all, you know, when deer are in contact with each other, they're swapping spit at a mineral lick, you know, or, or one's eaten, you know, off the ground where another one has urinated or defecated. It's possible to, to transfer the disease. You know, there's a lot of social grooming that goes on with deer. So it's that, that physical contact between deer that have it or contact with deer in the environment. So what I mean by that is, you know, where deer um, urinate, defecate, you know, those prions are left there in that soil. And, and we don't have a good way to decontaminate those soils. So uh, deer that come in contact with uh, parts of the environment where other CWD positive deer have left the prions can also become uh, impacted. So uh, yeah, lots, lots of ways that deer can share this with others. And that's one of the reasons that it's just so difficult to stop the spread of the disease. How, could uh, baiting, I know baiting with like corn piles, baiting with mineral leaks and that kind of thing, uh, a lot of states are kind of doing away with that. Is that influenced by, partially influenced by the CWD that's, uh, that can be spread through the, you know, like you said, the saliva that can that is uh, in contact with the mineral lick? 
Yep, absolutely. And uh, that is that is almost the sole reason that, that states are going run away with it. Um, the science is very clear that at bait piles or even at feed sites, potential for disease transmission, the risk of transfer of these is much higher um, because of that swap and spit and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's why when a state confirms CWD or a region of a state, you know, they find it uh, in almost every single case. Uh, the first thing that happens is there's no more baiting or feeding. If those things were legal um, before it was. Yeah, here in Kentucky, we're actually we're we're have the ability to bait if we want to. And we can you know, we can put corn out and that kind of thing. I've, that's uh, definitely come November. That's a very uh, common thing to to see, you know, to see people in Walmart with three or four bags of corn and. Is it a possibility that I know Kentucky right now isn't in the CWD zone, but, you know, as you get closer to the borders of other states, is it a possibility that deer that are exposed to CWD or are carrying CWD could come over and, you know, spread it that way? I mean, just because we have a lot of states that are that are close by that that could potentially have CWD carrying deer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and the two best ways to move the disease are one, moving live deer, deer farms, you know, where they move deer between facilities. Um, there's no good practical live animal test. Uh, the only way to test for sure with this is, is through, you know, a post-mortem test. So there are a couple live animal tests that, that work fairly well. Actually, they work good on deer that are in advanced stages of CWD. Um, they don't work very good at all in the early stages. Uh, and they really don't work on elk much at all. So uh, because there's not a good live animal test, um, there's a lot of deer moved legally and illegally that have the disease that we just don't know. So so that's a very easy way to move it around. Um, from a hunting standpoint, you know, it's also very easy to move this disease by moving the high-risk parts of deer carcasses, you know, of deer that we shoot. These prions accumulate in the eyes, the brain, the spleen, uh, the lymph nodes, the backbone. So uh, when you shoot a deer, say somebody from your area in Kentucky goes to Wisconsin, shoots a deer that has CWD, if they take the deer home, dump the carcass in your area of Kentucky, that is a perfect way to move the disease to your area. So because of that, that's why a lot of states today do not allow you to bring those high-risk parts in from uh, from states that have CWD. And, and there's a growing number of states that do not allow you to bring those parts in from any state, regardless if that state's found CWD or not. And uh, so those are safety measures, and and, and those are good safety measures. Uh, you know, I'm a hunter. I, I travel to hunt. But, uh, it's an inconvenience, you know, to have to bone that deer out or bone that meat out before you can move it. But, uh, man, it, it's an inconvenience well worth our time as hunters to make sure that we're not contributing to the problem of uh, the spread of CWD. Yeah, it definitely seems like it. It's a... Uh... It's crazy to think about that something so tragic for a population could be spread so easily. And it's just, it just comes down to the diligence of, of the hunters to make sure that we're doing the things that we need to do. I mean, as hunters, part of that title comes conservationists. We have to consider the whole health of, of wildlife in order to continue to be able to use these resources. And I mean, if that's, if that's the, what we have to do in order to be able to do that, then that's just, I guess that's just something that we're just going to have to deal with just to prevent these the terrible diseases from, from spreading. Now that's right. And you know, there's a lot of hunters that just simply aren't even aware that of those, you know, carcass transport restrictions or, uh, you know, yeah. even within a state or certainly between states. So uh, we, 
at QDMA, you know, we were trying to let hunters know, hey, man, make sure you know what those rules are. And, uh, you know, make sure you tell your hunting buddies, you know, especially if they're headed out of state. So, uh, you know, kind of a rule of thumb is, you know, when in doubt, bone it out. You know, if you're not sure if you can move the carcass or not, leave the carcass there or, you know, or, or send it to a landfill. And But just when you're moving meat in that, you know, uh, get that backbone out of there so that you're not going to take it home and end up, you know, inadvertently moving the disease uh, to a new area. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned moving elk and uh, hunting elk and that kind of thing. Cause in Kentucky, we have a reestablished, reestablished population. I know, you know, QDMA is not really going to work with a whole lot with elk, but I guess this, this same kind of thing really uh, is going to, going to apply, but we have a reestablished population within the past 30 years of elk in our, in our uh, Southeastern area of the state. And, a lot of those elk came from, you know, the Rocky Mountain area. So is it a possibility, though, that as we're moving these elk, you know, one of them could be carrying CWD and then, of course, that's going to continue to spread. You said there's there's really not a whole lot of, of live tests that we're actually able to do at this point. Now, that's right. And, and so, yes, there's absolutely the possibility, you know, when you're re- restocking populations like that, that you can move animals that have the disease. Fortunately for elk, they just carry the disease at a much lower rate than, than whitetails or mule deer. So it, it's less likely an elk, but, uh, but it's, you know, the chance is not zero for sure. And QDMA, we have a, a very public policy that, that we think there should be no live movement of deer or elk by hunters, by captive deer farmers, or by wild, state wildlife agencies. You know, uh, there's not a good live animal test. So we're telling, you know, captive farmers don't move them. And uh, we, you know, we think agencies should follow that same, that same advice. Uh, and in fact, uh, the state of Utah this past year um, did implement that change. Uh, they used to move quite a few mule deer from towns, from urban areas. They'd trap them and relocate them in other parts of the state. And uh, partly because of disease concerns, uh, they've changed their policy. And the state of Utah is no longer moving any live animals. So, um, you know, there's, Certainly a lot of deer and elk have been moved in the past, and you know, we understand that. But as we learn more about you know, potential dangers of this, uh, we don't think anybody ought to be moving them, at least until we get a much more reliable uh, live animal test. And there's folks working on them, so that's a good thing. Right, that certainly makes sense. I mean, it, it makes sense to err on the side of caution, especially when it comes to something that can that we don't have a vaccine for. We don't have any way currently to stop it, and it just seems the logical thing seems to be to make sure that, uh, you know, you're doing everything that we can not to spread it. And just by, by simply keeping populations, keeping deer, keeping animals in the areas that they're in right now, it, it definitely, definitely makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that we don't know about CWD, but, but we're learning more all the time. And so, uh, what we tell people is, you know, hey, you know, don't move the deer, don't move those high risk parts. Let's do what we can as hunters. And there's certainly things we can do to help, you know, limit the spread. And uh, hey, the science is going to catch up at some point. So you know, let's buy time while researchers work on better ways, you know, to stop this disease. And uh, so, uh, you know, when we do find a cure or a way to, to really combat it, you know, if the disease is limited spread, then that's just that much quicker that we can get rid of it. Um, you know, right now, um, we don't know how to stop it, but uh, fortunately, there's some really smart people uh, working on a solution to that. Absolutely, and that's that's a good way of putting it. Just just buy time and until science can can catch up to it. I think that's a that's a great suggestion, a great thing that that we can do. Now, are there actual characteristics? Uh, is it are there geographical characteristics of 
what are making deer populations more susceptible or, or is it going to be, you know, just sheer numbers based on, on the number of deer in an area is, I mean, what all factors are considered whenever you're looking at the landscape of CWD and how it's spreading over the past, you know, couple decades, what are some of the factors that, that we have to consider with that? Well, there's certainly some, some genetic, uh, issues at play there. Um, all deer are susceptible. Um, there's some genetic traits of deer that make some deer appears a little more susceptible, um, meaning, you know, they seem to come down with the disease a little bit quicker. So, uh, so there's a little bit of genetics at play here. Um, more than anything else, though, it's a, it's a difference in, in management regimes. Perfect example of that is uh, Wisconsin and Illinois both found the disease at the same time back in uh, late 2001 and confirmed it in early 2002. Uh, and at that time, you know, it was in southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois, not all that far apart. Um, prevalence rate right. in those areas was somewhere around 1%. Fast forward to today, the management actions taken are dramatically different between those two. Wisconsin basically took a hands-off approach for a long time. And, uh, and today in some of those areas, you know, prevalence rates are, you know, 20 to, to 50% in some segments of the deer population. Some of the adult bucks in those counties, over half of them, have the disease. In Illinois, where they continued with targeted removal, they would find a diseased animal and go and remove some of the animals around that through sharpshooting and you know working with the landowners. Um, today, they still have about the same prevalence rate. So you know, almost 20 years later, they've maintained an extremely low prevalence rate. Whereas in Wisconsin, the prevalence rate has skyrocketed, you know, and is still skyrocketing. So uh, while there are some differences, you know, in terrain and genetics and that kind of thing, by far the biggest difference is, is how we attack it on the landscape. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you seen a fair, fairly even amount of exposures between bucks and does? I mean, is one gender going to be more susceptible to it or does it is it just going to be non-discriminatory? It's just going to attack whatever deer is available to it? No, uh, bucks are more likely to contract a disease than does. And, uh, and adult bucks are about twice as likely to get it as adult does. So uh, if you look at a, you know, a, a graph, adult buck prevalence rates tend to be the highest, followed by adult does, followed by yearling bucks, followed by yearling does. So, um, so there are definite differences uh, in the sexes and then in between the ages. And, uh, and that's why there is so much discussion about, hey, how, you know, should we be protecting young bucks um, or not? And uh, so some states have said, we don't want to because we do, don't want them to turn into old bucks. Others have said, uh, we're going to continue to protect young bucks and make sure our hunters continue focusing on shooting analyst deer so that they don't let these deer herds grow too high. And, you know, we lose the battle from the disease end that way. Um, there's not an easy answer to that, though. You know, every, every situation is a little bit different. You know, researchers are really battling with that. Uh, management strategy right now, state agencies are battling on which side of that they should be on, you know, because of those prevalence rate differences in, in the ages and sexes. So, uh, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of hunters right in the middle of that debate. So uh, it, that's one of the things that, that keeps uh, the discussions on CWD always lively and, uh, you know, and a lot of people on both sides of the fence. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. it definitely sounds like, a, you know, of course, white-tailed deer hunting the, just the culture in general of course we're we're all going to love those mature wise you know old bucks and whenever we have something that's that's threatening that i mean that's that's of course just it's not going to be good for for hunting in general just it's not going to be good for just the the populations in general and that's 
and so it's, it's very appreciate i'm very appreciative as as a hunter as a whitetail hunter to have organizations like the qma and i have researchers out there that are looking for you know possible solutions to a rapidly growing problem i mean it's it's a it's a task that is i'm sure is very very difficult because the clock is ticking at this point i'm sure it's very difficult for these uh organizations to to catch up and and to try to find just some kind of answer to 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 slow this down i mean at this point is there is there really a whole lot other than you know kind of what we touched on with the with the preventing the spreading and preventing you know travel that kind of thing are there are there specific additional things that that can be done i mean whether on a, on the hunter's end or whether on a you know legislative end or that kind of thing well actually yes uh, on the legislative end um we have been working with legislators and, and other conservation organizations to, to provide some funding to state agencies to help manage this. When this was first confirmed in Wisconsin back in 2002, uh, there was close to $20 million of federal funding available for state wildlife agencies to, you know, to test for this disease and to, to figure out you know, the abundance of it and the spread of it. Um, very quickly, they figured out that, you know what, this probably cannot jump the species barrier to humans. So all of that funding went away. So uh, for the large part, today, states are left, you know, on their own to come up with those funds to help test, you know, deer for CWD and, and monitor it. So, so from the legislation end, absolutely, we can provide some federal funding. And uh, there are a handful of bills out there right now uh, that would provide that money. So that is, that is very good. Uh, from the hunter's end, we can make sure that, our, that we don't move those high-risk carcass parts around. Uh, we can make sure we tell our hunt buddies, you know, not to do that. Uh, stay engaged with our whether what our wildlife agencies are asking us to do and, and what they're doing, and uh, make sure we continue to harvest you know enough antlerless deer to, to keep deer herds in balance with habitats, particularly in these disease areas you know where we don't want the those deer herds to grow too high. One thing that we do know about this is as once we find it in an area, um, if we do reduce those deer herds, we can limit the spread because most of this is spread from deer to deer. So uh, if deer are not coming in contact with as many other deer, um, then we can keep it to a smaller area longer. And uh, so as hunters, we can play a huge role in, in helping out. Um, and from our agency's end, we can certainly dedicate uh, time and resources to figuring out exactly where it is and then working with our hunters uh, to, to be great partners to, uh, to, to manage those, those deer herds. And you know, I, I'm a big fan of engaging hunters in, in the state wildlife agencies. And I firmly believe that we have to work more closely together between agencies and hunters than ever before, certainly ever before in my career, um, you know, on managing CWD and battling this disease uh, to, to win this one. And, uh, and I'm an optimist. I fully believe we will win it, but it's going to take a bunch of work from all parties involved to make that happen. Absolutely. It's definitely going to have to be a team effort whenever you're facing, you know, this monster that, that, is named CWD and is, you know, something that can, that can totally wipe out populations quickly. You mentioned there, you know, the, the jumping from, from deer to humans. I mean, is it a possibility is, I guess a, a better way of saying it is if we were to potentially eat or accidentally eat an animal or a deer, an elk or whatever, maybe carrying CWD, is it harmful to humans to, to consume that meat? Well, all the research done thus far, um, they, they have never infected a human. Um, and it appears that there's the species barrier between deer with CWD and humans is pretty strong. 
meaning uh, it looks like humans cannot get it. We can never say for sure that they won't, though, but thus far, um, it looks like we can. However, both uh, the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization both suggest that if you shoot a deer or an elk you know, in an area that has CWD, get it tested before you consume that meat. So uh, that's our advice. Certainly, if you're hunting in one of these zones, go get it tested. You know, package the deer, process it, do whatever you want, but just hold that deer until you get a satisfactory test back and then eat it. That's uh, the, you know, the, the wise thing to do. Um, I know people who have eaten CWD positive deer and, you know, and I'm sure that we've eaten them for a long time. However, you know, nobody wants to be the first to come down with a disease. So um, get it tested, hold on to it. Once you know that uh, you get a satisfactory test back, then go ahead and enjoy the heck out of that venison. But uh, that, that's just good advice to follow for anybody hunting in zones that do have the disease. Absolutely. How about how long does that testing process take? I mean, is it fairly quick? Cause I'm, I'm thinking more of the, you know, from the hunter side, you, you've harvested, harvested this meat. You want to make sure that it, it stays fresh. I mean, is, are we talking, you know, a few days or I mean a month? I mean, how about how long does it take for that, that result process to, to get back to you? That varies uh, across the United States. And, and unfortunately it's still kind of long. Um, two weeks, to, to three or four weeks is about average. Um, that's faster than it's been in the past. And what happens is now where there's just more CWD in the landscape and more people testing, um, there's just a bottleneck at the, the facilities that can test for it. So uh, if you're an entrepreneur, Tyler, that'd be a great thing to do is establish some new test sites or testing facilities because there is more demand to have animals tested than we currently have supply. So the agencies recognize that as a, as a roadblock and, uh, you know, that's one thing that we have to overcome. We have to come up with a, a quicker test, you know, that somebody doesn't have to wait, you know, two weeks or more. Um, I was at a, actually spoke at a CWD event in, in central Pennsylvania last week. Um, there was a, a, a personnel there from the Pennsylvania Game Commission um, that said, you know, that they are committed to getting tests back this year. And, you know, the majority of them will be back within two weeks. And uh, so that's that's at the head of the curve. You know, there's people in other states waiting a lot longer, but, uh, you know, it's still a long time. So uh, we have to to make that shorter and uh, it's going to take more testing facilities and more uh, supplies for that to make that happen. But uh, we're definitely headed in that direction. Right. And it's it's kind of a it's kind of one of those things that you also have to balance, too, because, I mean, of course you want to make sure that that you're not going to be consuming something like you said you don't want to be the first one to contract something that that could potentially be harmful and then i mean it's it's kind of a you know you may have to wait a couple weeks but at the same time you at least will have the peace of mind knowing that the meat that you're eating is going to be healthy for you and your family and your friends and that kind of thing to to be able to consume and it's just that that peace of mind is something that i think is worth you know the little bit of time that you have to wait for consuming being able to consume that that meat at that time yeah no i agree and uh, you know and most people um you know the the chances of it having the disease is is pretty low so uh you know, but still wait and see um i have friends that hunt in the, the core area of, of cwd in wisconsin that over the last few years literally uh 50 of the deer they shoot have it so when you shoot a deer it's literally a flip of a coin whether it's going to have it or not so uh you know those people are acutely aware of the need to have those tested, you know, before they eat them. And, uh, 
and I just hope that the, that the vast majority of deer hunters never end up in a situation like some of my friends there are dealing with. Right, absolutely. That's not not something that uh you want to necessarily be be messing around with. But as we're kind of winding down here, we're bumping up against time. There's there's always one question that I like to ask my guest, and um I didn't really prep you for this, so I'm I'm interested in seeing what what you come up with, but on a personal level, what does hunting mean to you? Oh, hunting is, is just part of who I am, Tyler. Um, I, I have had the opportunity to work with a, with a lot of hunters over the years. Some people hunt um, just to go and you know, kind of be at camp with the friends. Um, some people hunt for food. Some people uh, just kind of like to associate themselves with camouflage and, and bows or guns. Um, then there's others uh, like me that, man, hunting is just part of who I am. And, uh, and I literally would, would be an entirely different person if not for, you know, the exposure to the woods at a very young age and, you know, and all the deer camps and turkey camps that I've been in. So uh, hunting uh, is extremely important to me. Um, some of the best days of the year that I spend with my young son and my young daughter uh, are in deer stands or, uh, or uh, chasing squirrels or turkeys. Um, it's, it's, a, it's way more than, than just the food value. And, and we eat a tremendous amount of wild game in my house over the year. Uh, we give a lot of wild game to friends and family. Um, but that part is certainly very, very important. But uh, it, go, it goes far beyond that. Uh, I've said on numerous occasions to friends and at, at seminars that I've given, uh, you know, I feel really bad for, for those people who will never experience the magic of the woods. And, uh, and a lot of those magical times have happened, you know, when, when we didn't bring any game home. Um, it was just uh, certain experiences with family or friends that, that happened while we were afield. So uh, suffice to say, hunting is very important to me and, and is absolutely critical uh, to, to who I am as, as a person. Absolutely. I can definitely agree with that. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, uh, being able to share the woods and being able to share the hunting experience with your kids. My, I've got a five-year-old, he's going to turn six and I've just took him on his first dove hunt this past weekend and he absolutely loved it. I mean, he was, he was running around picking up birds. I mean, he had a, had a good old time and I've taken him to on some turkey hunts with me and some deer hunts with me and stuff. And just being able to have that opportunity to be able to introduce our kids and being able to, you know, just to share this thing that we're so passionate about, to share this thing that's a part of us. So like you said, it's, it's just an incredible experience and being able to, being able to give, you know, family and friends some wild game that, we had the opportunity to go out and, and harvest and it's a, it's a very unique opportunity and it, there's, there's quite literally nothing else like it. And it's, and it becomes ingrained in, into who we are as people into who we are as, as hunters, quite frankly. I agree. Uh, I'm a better person because I'm a hunter and uh, there's a lot of wildlife in my area that benefit uh, from my habitat efforts because I'm a hunter. So uh, yeah, I'm uh, I certainly wouldn't want to give that, give that part of me up. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So if listeners are wanting to learn more about QDMA, where, where do you suggest that they go, go check it out? They can go to our website, which is QDMA.com. All kinds of information there on, you know, managing deer and, and about deer and about hunting and about habitat. So uh, all free for the taking. Uh, they can go there and grab that. Uh, and if they wanted to contact me directly, um, I'm glad to answer any questions or help any way I can. Uh, my email address is kadams, K-A-D-A-M-S, at qdma.com. Uh, I help folks around the country every day, and uh, I'm glad to help any of your listeners uh, if I'm able to. Well, I appreciate you taking some time today. I, I really do. It was a great conversation, and 
I learned a whole lot about, you know, just deer diseases and just basically getting rid of some of the old myths that you, that kind of get thrown around, you know, through social media and through the news and that kind of thing. And just being able to hear it from the source and be able to hear it from a, somebody who's, who's literally in the field and, and getting things done. So I, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me tonight. All right. You got it. My pleasure. And uh, certainly good luck in the woods this fall. All right. Thank you very much. You too. I appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks again.